have the amazing Rita Q as our speaker. Rita came, first came to OA in 2003 from Northern Ireland, and she's now living in Manchester uh, in, in England, for those of you who don't know, in the UK since 1993. She is also the person that started this meeting and the 100-pounder meeting tomorrow. We're so excited to hear her. So here you go, Rita. Well, thanks, Tina. Thanks for that lovely introduction. My name's Rita Key. I'm a recovered compulsive over here. Hi, everybody. I'm only speaking as, as two speakers um, became sick. Uh, I think the pandemic has taken people down still. So um, I thought I couldn't get anybody and I thought, well, I've not spoken. So you'll just have to listen to me, guys. So I'll just give you a qu quick potted history. I am a relapse survivor, uh, but how I got there, I, I ate like Bill drank. There is no doubt about it. I remember from a very early age eating I grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles so I grew up in a lot of like in a you know well I suppose it was a war zone but I, I it was normal to me so uh but we always had to be home for dinner because my parents had to know where we were obviously with everything that was going on and you know um food was a really big thing in our house really big I had four older brothers and I remember mum used to say she'd have to put it the cereal away in the morning because they'd all just keep going at it teenage boys you know and I was a lot younger I was six years younger than my youngest brother and I kind of learned from that as well I thought oh but food I could never see what food was doing to me I could only ever see what it was doing for me and I, I loved it. I, I, I love food. Everything revolved around food. I said yes to birthday parties to whose mom was the best baker. Irish mammies can cook like the best of them. You know, I had one particular girl in our class who I didn't really like at primary school. This is awful in primary school. But they always got the best treats at their birthday. They had like, they had the piñatas, they had everything. I never had any of that, you know, and it was like, yeah, let's go there. And, you know, everybody else was playing. I always joked they were playing pin the tail and the donkey. I was pinning the fork into the sausages. That's all I was interested in, you know. And I wasn't present. I was present, but I wasn't. And then I came away to England to study at university when I was 18. And my weight was slowly going up. I went to boarding school and I hated it. I hated school. And um, I felt very left out. And then I came to England and I, I, I made friends really quickly. And I got, you know, I couldn't believe I had friends. People liked me. But there was something inherent in me that hated myself. From a very young age, I always felt lonely. I always felt alone. I felt this terrible aloneness. And I'm going to share a slide with you just to show the example of this is this is my this was what happened to me. So it talks, it says in the big book very clearly, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. I don't want to, I'm paraphrasing it. Although they know it is injurious, they cannot, um, after a time, differentiate the truth from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented until they can again experience that sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks or a few bites in my case. And after they have succumbed, the phenomenon of craving develops and they're back in the spree. This is that cycle. I feel always felt restless, irritable, discontent. Then I start thinking the mental obsession starts. Then I take my first bite and I promise you, if I had a dollar for every time I said I would have just one, I would be a billionaire. The compulsion, the craving begins, I'm out of control and then I feel crap about it and I'll never do it again. And guess what? An hour passed and I was looking for food again. So that was the way it was. And when I came down, I started drinking. Now, I am not an alcoholic. I don't I don't belong in the beverage program. I don't actually drink alcohol because it's loaded in sugar anyway. But um, it was a gateway drug for me. And I noticed the more I drank, 
at university as you do, um, you know, the more I wanted to eat. And I thought, and I, I genuinely did not know. This was all I knew. It says that in the book, very clearly in the big book, it says their alcoholic life seemed only normal. Well, my eating disorder and my disordered thinking was normal to me. I was desperate for people to like me, you know, it was horrendous. And I was crippled by it. And my brother approached me about a way years ago. And I remember, he, he, I just remember being mortified going, how dare you? And I remember flouncing off in a big huff because I couldn't deal with my emotions. And I was like, no, I don't, I'm not an addict. I'll go on a diet. And of course I did. I've dieted a million times. I have lost weight so many times. I have lost my body weight about 20 times. And guess what? All I really did was send my weight out for reinforcements. That's all I actually did, you know, and and then um, a couple of years later, I got diagnosed in 2002 with a really um, bad chronic illness, uh, very similar to lupus, but it's very rare what I have. And it's treated with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And I got really sick and they put me on steroids. Well, they might as well have put petrol. I might as well have been smoking beside a petrol station because it just was like, oh, it was all bets were off and I just couldn't stop eating. And the food was my mouth. You know, it says, it says in the big book, alcohol was my master. Food became my master. I had that irritability. You know, I needed people to see things my way to feel good about myself. I needed that, you know. And then I was away with friends. And I remember I was, my friend had taken her leftover chocolates, her leftover Christmas chocolates. This was in June. I didn't even have any leftover Christmas chocolates before freaking Christmas, never mind June. And she, my best mate's tiny. And I remember I just, we, we went in this, we went to see the Giants Causeway in Northern Ireland with friends. Um, and I just remember eating them like I see her in the car and she's like, you haven't stopped eating them. And I remember thinking, oh, dear. And then I thought there's something wrong here. But again, didn't. And then in 2003, Christmas 2002, leading into three, horrendous, couldn't stop eating. It was Christmas time. The kids were really young, my nieces and nephews. I don't have children. And uh, there was little Santa stops all over the house. And my brother's a really big house. So we were just there was just I was just eating. I'd go to the bathroom, which was at the back of downstairs. Lou was at the back of the house. And it would be literally a motorway fest of eating. And then my sister-in-law, who's gorgeous, just said to me, she said, are you okay? You haven't stopped eating. And I thought, did she notice? I was 350 pounds. This did not happen because I had a snack accident. It did not happen because I tripped over a can of Pringles. I couldn't get out of the food. Food was everything to me. It was my best friend. It was my lover. It was the most important thing. I'd go out for meals with people and they'd be telling me all sorts of stuff. And I was a good friend. I like to think back then I had good friends. I have a really good marriage. You know, I had a very good job, but people would tell me stuff and I'd only be half listening because I'd be looking at the menu thinking, I wonder how much I can get away with. Could I have a starter or a main and an extra side? Because those sides are really small. It was it was like a mathematical equation. And I always had to, I always had mixology as well. So I had to follow the sweet by salt, salt by crunchy. And it was just, it was insane. And it was like, I always liken it to trying to tune in a radio. You know, when you try and tune a radio and you hear like, you kind of hear like, that's what it was like all the time. It was the disease telling me I was crap and that I needed to eat and that I needed to eat. And, um, you know, it says something if you, you know, if you're somebody who requires a miracle, you need to start acting like somebody who requires a miracle, you know. And I hear people talk about willingness. Uh, you know, for me, it was desperation. That trumps willingness all the time. I was desperate. But when my brother that Christmas, when I, my sister-in-law had said that to me, I thought, shit, I need to do something here. Excuse me for swearing. And uh, I rang my brother back and I said, right, see this away malarkey that you were talking about? I might just go. I thought it was going to be something like train spotting. I just thought, what well, you know, when I got in there, 
And sure enough, he said, there's a meeting around, talk about higher power, there was a meeting around the corner from my house, literally within walking distance. And I went and I thought, great, they're all going to be really big. I'm finally not going to be the biggest person in the room. And I got there and they were all slim and they were all talking about eating out of bins and stuff, telling me their story. And I thought, that's disgusting. And I thought, I, I never had out of a bin. Do you know why? Never got to the bin. I was the bin. I was the human dustbin. I had everything. And uh, I sort of heard this thing about higher power. So I tried it and I tried to get three meals a day at first because I, I, was, I wasn't one of these. I never threw up, but I ate all the time. And it wasn't massive binges. It was just nonstop eating. So my breakfast would become lunch. Lunch would become dinner. I'd renamed lunch dinner because it never stopped. And then it was just rinse and repeat every day. And I didn't do much physical exercise anymore either. And then um, I went away, tried three meals a day, and I heard about giving up sugar. And I thought, oh, geez, I, I can't know. I'm getting married. I can't know you have my wedding cake. You know, all these, all the stupid thoughts that you get when you first come to away. What about Christmas? What about the Easter bunny? Um, no, didn't matter. Because, so what I tried first was, I decided I'd only have desserts when I ate out. And then two weeks into away, my husband said, we seem to be eating out an awful lot. And I was like, really? I hadn't even noticed. Of course, I'd noticed I manipulated the whole thing. And, you know, I'd be bullying him. We'd be sat at dinner and I'd be going, you're not having dessert. Why, you know, I turned into the Gestapo literally in front of my husband. I'd be like, why aren't you having dessert? What do you mean you're not having dessert? I want dessert. You have dessert. I'll get two teaspoons. We'll share. And, and he used to look at me as if I was mad. I mean, I've never shared a dessert in my life. I would have wrestled the rock to the ground to get my last fix of food, you know? So um, anyway, to cut a long story short, I decided then I'd only have, I'd have a little hot chocolate, but I'd only have it in the evening. And then I noticed I was having, that had moved to five o'clock, which had moved to three o'clock. And then before I knew it, 11 o'clock in the morning, I was drinking hot chocolate. I thought, yeah, the sugar's really got to go. So that was my first round away. Made my list of foods, got abstinent, got a sponsor, worked the steps, and I had really good recovery for about five or six years, got married, went my honeymoon and like it says in the book is at page 33 it said there must be no lurking notion of any kind once an alcoholic always it says this case concerns a powerful lesson sorry most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch we could thereafter drink normally but here's a man who at 55 found he was just where he'd left off at 30 once an alcoholic always an alcoholic and it says if we are planning to stop drinking there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol i was on a flight in america they put down a snack box it was all normal food except for one thing i had no sugar but there was a night sugar item and a chocolate bar and i picked it up and i thought i'll be fine and you know what i was fine we went around the world for three months and i was i went to oa meetings in countries all over the world but that noise, you know, that noise I talked, that had stopped. That stopped when I was in the program. And then that noise that started to wake up again. I thought, oh, my God, I'm trying to chill into, I was trying to chill into my disease. It was like, I don't know if anybody felt like this, but when you're going into relapse, the prelapse before relapse, you're fighting it. You're, you know, you're being dragged in. You're not doing your step 10s. You're not doing your 11 and 12s. Everybody is every outreach call you get you want to put slam the phone down and just go would you just i want to watch another episode of some rubbish thing on netflix to get out of myself you know it says men and women drink essentially we eat because we like the effect but i can get the effect from anything i can get it from amazon i can get it from netflix i can get it from anything it's about emotional sobriety for me you know so and i have a disease more and that is not 
it's not food anymore, thank God. But anyway, I'll tell you what happened. It, it was a disaster. I relapsed really badly. So the, the weight that I got out for reinforcements came back. I was 350 pounds when I came into the program. I lost 140. In my relapse, I put on, I think, 180. Uh, I was 380 pounds. I got really sick. And when that happened, I still stayed, but I, I was in and out. And I sat in fat serenity for a long time as well, where I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm abstinent. I'm doing well. I hadn't lost a stitch of weight. And I had, I had a lot of weight to lose. And that's the only reason I bring that up is it's not about the weight. You focus on the weight, you'll lose the program. Focus on the program, you'll lose the weight. But I had a lot of weight to lose. And that's very important, you know, the threefold part of it. And um, it was really interesting. And I had a lot of things happen. My, my dad dropped dead in the street when my mom was visiting me. Then my mom dropped dead a year later. And then I got stage four cancer. I think I must be the only cancer patient in the world that managed to put on about 80 pounds. I ate my way through that stage four cancer. I ate it, yeah. And they loved me because I'd be, enter- I, was in, I was in all the time. I was an inpatient, entertaining everybody, you know, um, you know, I'd be hiding, oh, hiding under the sheets, just causing mayhem because we are not a glum lot after all, you know. And they used to give me extras. They'd always come around and go, oh, here's a few extra cheese and biscuits. Oh, I was lapping it up. I couldn't help, you know, my disease was in full throttle. But I still remembered about away, and then I had a massive spiritual awakening. It is not like this for everybody, but I want to say to you, it had to be like this for me because I needed a slap in the face so hard. I needed God literally to reappear to appear in front of me. I was in with my ninth bout of sepsis as an inpatient here in a hospital, local hospital. I was very poorly and I'd taken a bath for the bone marrow pain. And I remember getting into the bath and if you're big, you do not let the bath water go out first because you're a dead weight and I did that and I had no strength left and I remember the cord in my room that you pulled to get the nurse and I thought I can't pull that I'm 380 pounds we would need we'd need one of the feckin you know WWF guys on here to get me out of the bath this is not going to happen and I just started to cry I started to cry and I heard God's voice really clearly saying you need to go back to the way and I remember lying there going yeah I know but I need to get out of the bath first and uh, I got out of the bath eventually. I finally mustered enough strength. I got out of the bath. And uh, when I got out of my wheelchair, I got out of hospital two weeks later. And I remember I put my wheelchair, got my husband put the wheelchair in the car and I drove to my first away meeting. And that was three years ago, last Tuesday. And I have been sober since, thank God, by the grace of God, one day at a time. And I'm telling you now, I have worked hard. The first, my first, my first relapse or my first recovery was easy. I have to be honest. It was pink cloud absence the whole way until I picked up my second one. I've had to really work at like a dog. And that's the way it should be, you know, because I worked hard at my disease. I ate like Bill drank. I ate hard and fast, you know. And I always say, you know, our disease is a liar. 50% of my, my disease, when I'm, in, when I'm in the food, 50% of my head will tell me lies. And the other 50% of my head will believe them. And I can only focus on God and there can only be one God in my life. And he has got a job to do. I, when I go, you know, step one, I'm powerless over food, completely powerless. I have made it really clear now and I can share any of the resources that you need. I have a really good binge food sheet. I work out my red foods, my green foods. There's no yellow. There's no amber gambler with me because amber to me is just the food you want to eat like they were green. (laughs) But you can't quite make them green. And we've all been there, you know. I uh, I take photographs of my food every day. I photograph what I eat. I send it to my sponsor. She knows what I'm going to have or I know what I'm going to have that day. It's all planned. I pray before each meal. B12, 
before my feet hit the ground. I get up very early. I get up usually around 6.30. And before my feet hit the ground, I say to God, please take this day from me because I'll just make an SH1T show of it if, if you don't. Say the step three prayer. And then I go to the gym usually or go for a swim. I really connect in the water actually for some reason. You know, and, I, and I've just finally realized that recovery isn't about getting what you want. It's about wanting what you have. I didn't want what I had when I was in the food. I hated it. My skin crawled. I had good relationships with my friends. And I remember when I made my amends, you know, on the first time around, I wrote letters to everybody and I sent them all. And I spoke to my husband and he was like, you weren't that bad. But I remember losing my head. I remember he didn't clean the counters properly. I've shared this story so many times. I was telling my niece yesterday, I'm mortified about it. He didn't clean the counters properly. And I was like, you've not done that right. Well, that's it. That's it. It's all over. I said, I can't, I can't be with you. I can't be with somebody who can't clean a counter properly. So I started packing my bag to go. This was at the very beginning. We were only going out about a year or two. He started to cry. And I thought, this is terrible. I was thinking of myself, right? The, good, the, the same part of me was going, this is terrible. But the resentful part of me was going, well, I'm committed now. So I'm packing that frigging bag and I'm packing the stuff under it. And he's getting more upset. And I'm thinking, and I'm, you know, it's like the disease of me. I'm like, what are you doing? I don't know what I'm doing, but I can't eat. So I'm going to do this. And, you know, just insanity, just insane behavior. That's the unmanageability part. That's the irritable, restless discontent that pushes you into the mental obsession and starts you thinking about the food and I'll pick it up and then the phenomenon of cravings. And then two, coming to believe a power greater than ourselves. I grew up in a country where people were killing each other for being the wrong flavor of God. I didn't want to know about God. But then I realized I couldn't do this on my own. I thought, do you know what? Indiana Jones, for anybody who knows Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom, Harrison Ford is stood at a bridge that he can't see. And they keep going, Indy, walk across it. And he's like, I can't see it. And they go throw stones. He takes a step out, a leap of faith, and the bridge is there. That is God for me. It's a God of my understanding. It's good on orderly direction. It is God for me because I, you know, I believe in God, but it, it can be whatever you want it to be. It just can't be me. Or, you know, because I can't do this. I tried and failed miserably for 27 years before I came into OA. And then I had to make a decision to, to give it to him because that's what I did, the hokey cokey. You know, I don't know if you have the hokey cokey in the States, but, you know, I was it was like a tug of war. God, take this from me. And what I used to do is I had two rooms in the house, recovery, relapse. I'd lock God in the relapse room and I'd say, I'll be back, Santa Claus God, I'll be back tonight. And then I'm sitting praying, give me the lottery numbers, but please let me, please let me be thin. Don't let me put any weight on while gorging on food. That made no sense. So step three, I entered into covenant with him. I, I, I am powerless over food, but I'm not helpless. There are things that I can do. And I hear that a lot. And, you know, I heard a speaker once say, you know, we're really sorry you didn't get the results from the program for the work that you didn't do. And that's fantastic because that's the truth. You've got to work this like anything because we work at our disease, man, you know. We had a search and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. The first time I did that was incredible. This last time it was good as well, but I'd cleared a lot of stuff up in the fourth, admitted to God ourselves. I am very open anyway. I didn't have a problem with that, but rigorous honesty is required. It says that all over the book. I thought I was very honest, except when it came to food. I remember actually saying to somebody once, I don't eat that much. It was 350 pounds. What was I thinking? I must have been inhaling gas because I don't know why I thought that. Entirely ready to have God removing. Five, six, seven, eight leading on to nine these are the real growth steps now I'm handing over I'm thinking yeah take gossip from me take my judgment take my ego ego has three things that always say it make me right 
make me different and make me feel good right now. That's all my ego wants. Ego drives me. It is an ego for deflation disease. When I wake up in the morning after eight hours of sleep, I have to, it's like a bouncy castle, you know, the bouncy castles. It's like, I have to deflate that yet again. And sometimes there's air and I'm squeezing it and trying to get it out. But, you know, it's an ego deflating disease. And then we go into 10, 11 and 12. You know, step one is admission. Two to seven is submission. Eight to nine is restitution. And 10, 11 and 12 is reconstruction. I am becoming the person God wants me to be. That's what humility is to me. You know, and I, that's, you know, I just, I, I can't believe sometimes that, that that's me, that, 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 you know, that I want to do things now without getting stuff back. It's not always that way. I mean, there's still sometimes, you know, there's still, I suppose, deferred resentment sometimes. What is it to say? Expectations are just deferred resentment, you know, but, you know, and I find now if I don't do my work, if I don't do my step tens, I always share this one day I notice, but two days you'll, you'll notice and you'll definitely notice. And, you know, in the Oxford group, which predates it, um, OA, you know, where, sorry, AA, which AA kind of fell from. They said there was four impediments to recovery. And I'll share these in the chat. One is a resentment you won't get rid of. Two is a secret you won't tell. Three is a vicarious thrill, character defect like gossip. Four is a restitution you will not make. But the pain of your overeating has to outweigh the pain of letting food go. And the food will destroy you. And I'm telling you now, the disease wanted me dead. But you know what? When that didn't happen, it settled for miserable. It settled for me being miserable. And I just want to show you uh, some photos. I just want to give you some hope. I forgot to share my photos before at another, but so I thought I'll just show you these. This is me over the years. So I hope you can see these. That's me on my wedding day. Myself in Hong Kong, myself and my husband in Hong Kong, looking very dapper there. That's me with stage four cancer. That's the biggest I ever got. That was 380. That red one in the red is me about four days before I came to back to away. The, the next one in the bowl I put in because I always laugh and joke and say that basically sums up uh, that sums up relapse to me. That's me and my sober AF hat gifted to me by another fellow. And then that's me quite recently, Tan. So, uh, you know, it works if you work it. It really does. And I know that's really, you know, we have dis- we have disordered thinking as addicts. You know, I cannot think my way out of the food. I just can't. I'm an intelligent woman, you know, but. I was stumped when it came to you know and it says very clearly in the way 12 and or in AA 12 and 12 it talks about it it says no other kind of banker bankruptcy is like this one and I'm going to substitute alcohol for food food now became the rapacious rapacious creditor it bleeds us of all self-sufficiency and all will to resist its demands once this stark fact is accepted our bankruptcy is going human concerns is complete and I want to share one more slide. And for, just for the thing, this is the bedevilments versus the promises. We talk about the pr- promises all the time. I think I've shared these before. I'm hoping to God I've got them. Yeah, here they are. On the left-hand side, this is page 52 of the big book. This shows exactly what my life was like before I, when I was in the food. I was having trouble with personal relationships. Nobody was doing what I wanted. You know, I couldn't control my emotional natures. I was packing because my husband couldn't clean a counter. I was a prey to misery and profession. Everything got me down. The postman looking at me funny, you know, somebody else mentioning something. It was just all rubbish. I couldn't make a living. That wasn't true for me. I could. I had feelings of usefulness. Every morning I woke up, I wish I was dead. I think when I was in relapse for 18 months, I was full of fear. I was unhappy and I couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And then the promises came true and they have come true for me. And they come true every day. We will lose interest. 
and selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. We will comprehend the word serenity. We will know peace. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. And so on and so forth. And I'll suddenly realize what God is doing for us. We couldn't do for ourselves. I couldn't sleep. Last night, I have a very strong action plan, which includes exercise. Not a lot of exercise, but I've got to move my body. I was in a wheelchair, so, so being able to move my body now is an absolute blessing. And I went to the gym. I have my personal trainer on Tuesday morning. He's brutal. And uh, I went this morning and I was early and he went, he's Australian. I do a really bad Australian accent, so I apologize to anybody. He was like, hey, really, you're really early into the gym. Are we working early? And I was like, not a chance. I'm just going to like saunter on the, the you know, the recumbent bike here. But um, we, he says to me this morning, you're getting stronger. But as I was on the bike, the sun was rising. And I just thought how dark it is before the dawn. I'm getting very emotional. I just thought I have, we are the luckiest. When you find recovery, we are the luckiest people on earth. And I saw that sunrise and I saw the birds and the squirrels and the cars and people starting to go to work. And I thought, I am so lucky because this time four years ago, I was hooked up to a machine fighting for my life, dying of cancer and dying of the food. Do you know what? The cancer was the cancer was easy compared to the food. God forgive me for saying that, but it's the truth. The food was taking me out every day of my life and it was destroying my self-worth. And I hated myself because of it. And, you know, I know what lies ahead if I go into the food. And I want to read, I just want to read something. It's the promises of relapse. I want to read them. If we dive headlong into relapse, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new pain. And we will remember the misery that made us want to quit in the first place. We will regret our decisions, our actions, and feel as though we have lost control. We will comprehend the words addiction and insanity and we will know self-loathing. No matter for how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how there are still more opportunities to make more mistakes and experience more pain. That feeling of uselessness, uselessness and self-pity will reappear. We will lose interest in fellows and gain interest in selfish things. Self-seeking will be our way of life. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will return. We will intuitively know how to savage, sabotage our lives and the lives of those we care about. We will suddenly realize that we are doing for ourselves what even our worst enemies would not wish upon us. The price of admission into recovery was pain and misery. And upon leaving, we are entitled to a full refund. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. We've witnessed this pattern frequently and we see the results sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we give in to them. And it goes back to saying, if you stop doing the things that keep you in the program, you'll go back to the things that brought you. And I want to say to people, there are going to be people in here who are eating. There are going to be people who listen to this who are eating. I couldn't get out of the food. It was not easy. And I had to work at it. And you know what really saves me now? Step 12, all day long, working with others, taking calls. And sometimes I take a call and I'm joyous, happy and free, clapping away. This is wonderful. And sometimes I take a call and I think, oh, for goodness sake, really? But every single call I take, I feel God on it. And at the end, I'm so glad. If it's a good call, I'm buzzed up. If it's a bad call, I'm buzzed up because I just think this is fellowship. I've got the fellowship I crave now. There are people on this line that I love who I would die for because they're just amazing. You know, and, and people who I don't know quite yet who are equally as amazing, you know. And I just think that's what's so important. Step 12 is, is working with others, you know, service. We're always banging on. We always ask in this meeting for service to people to help. But service has got to, it's got to be uncomfortable. 
I am running from one thing to the next. My poor husband was like, I've got a schedule. I'm like, you know, and just to go back to the four impediments, I see the four absolutes that come true. The four absolutes of the Oxford group as well that we talked about before when I mentioned the Oxford group. One, honesty. This is what I think about every day. Is it true or is it false? Two, unselfishness. How will this affect somebody else? Three, purity. Is it right or is it wrong? And love. Is it ugly or is it beautiful? And I have to live a purpose-driven life now. And I say, please, in the morning and thank you at night. And in between, I try and help another compulsive reader. And I'm just going to finish off by reading something. Sorry, I hope you don't mind me reading this, but um, I, I really love it. Um, it's, it was about an alcoholic, but I'm just going to change it to make sense. And, oh, I'm nearly up to say. A hopeless compulsive overeater has fallen into a hole and couldn't find their way out. A businessman happened to pass by and heard the compulsive overeater calling out for help. The businessman gave him some money and told him to buy himself a ladder. But the compulsive overeater could not find the ladder, so he stayed stuck in the hole. Some say the businessman actually gave him the ladder and he sold it to fund his, his latest spree. A doctor walked past the uh, compulsive overeater and he cried out, help me, I can't get out of this hole, the doctor said. Take these pills, they'll relieve the pain. The compulsive overeater said thanks, but when the pills ran out, he was painfully aware he was stuck in the hole. A renowned psychiatrist strolled by and heard the compulsive overeater pleading for help. He stopped and said, how did you get into that hole? Were you born there? Were you put there by your parents? Tell me about yourself. It will alleviate your sense of loneliness. So the compulsive overeater talked with him for an hour. Then the psychiatrist said he had to go. But he would come back the next week. Compulsive overeater thanked him, but realized he was still stuck in the hole. Priest came by and the alcoholic or the compulsive overeater called out for help. Priest gave him a Bible and said, I'll pray for you. He got down on his knees and prayed for the compulsive overeater, then left. The alcoholic was very grateful and thanked the priest for his Bible, which he read. But he was still stuck in the hole. Finally, a recovered compulsive overeater happened to be passing and heard the poor person cry for help. Right away, the rec recovered compulsive overeater jumped into the hole with him. The suffering compulsive overeater said, why, you, why did you do that? Now we're both stuck in here for, in this godforsaken hole. But the recover compulsive overeater said with a gleam in his eye, it's okay, I've been here before. I know the way out. Guys, I know the way out. We all know the way out. The answer's in the books. The answer's in the steps. You know, you work the steps. They will do for you what the food, I'm telling you now, the steps will do exactly the same as what the food does for you, except without all the horrific consequences. And I just want to give people hope, you know, because I was hopeless. And I'm just really grateful that I could share my story here today um, in, this, in this beautiful meeting, which is surrounded by beautiful people. And I just love you all. And thank you for listening to me. And thank you for allowing me the opportunity as well. I'll leave it there. Wow. That was amazing.